When you have Mark chapter 4, verse 35, if you would stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word. The Bible says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You may be seated. This is one of the accounts that as we look at the Gospel of Mark and as we consider the Gospels in general that we most likely are familiar with, it's one that is often talked about. It's one that there have been a number of songs written about. It's, it's one, again, that's just it's kind of popular, and it's, it's also one that kind of it gets talked about, especially when people are, are dealing with difficult circumstances. This is often that, that portion of Scripture that maybe someone would point someone to and, and, and talk about Jesus calming the fears of, of someone who is dealing with hardship. I happen to think that, that there's some very rich material in these verses, and it's one of the reasons that this is uh, one of my favorite texts to preach and to look at and to think about, because I think it says something very important about God. It says something very important about Christ, and unfortunately, sometimes it says something very important about us. I want to start out by kind of confessing to you that, that the makeup of this sermon is something that I struggle with along with plenty of other Christians. And it's something that I don't think we should be ashamed that we struggle with it because we see the disciples struggling with it. But at the same time, we should be intentional in the fact that we struggle with it and we don't just let it go. And what I'm talking about here is our, our fears and our doubts. If we are honest with ourselves, and I hope that you are, I hope that you are honest with yourself and with others, we have fear and we have doubt. And if you have no fear and you have no doubt, I'd really encourage you to think more deeply about life and faith because when you think deeply about life and about faith, It's when you have to encounter, when you have to kind of take head on those fears and those doubts. 
We have this instance in Mark's gospel where the disciples deal with fear and with doubt. And quite honestly, I suppose that were we in the same situation that they find themselves here in Mark's gospel in chapter 4 in verses 35 through 41, I, I assume we would be in a similar place. I shared this text on Monday with the students at the middle school that I get to speak to on on Monday afternoons, and I asked them to consider what their greatest fear is. And some of them were, as you might expect with sixth graders, not terribly important in the scheme of life. And that's maybe an understatement. But then some of them were legitimate things that cause us fear. One little girl that was sitting near the back pointed out the fact that her greatest fear or the time she was most afraid was when she found out that her mother had cancer. It's a pretty good answer. It's a lot better than heights or the boogeyman or whatever, getting beat up. One of them was getting beat up by his sister, which he should have kept to himself. Simply should never be shared in public. But this one girl, she shared how she was fearful of the time she found out that her mother had cancer. Instantly drew me in can relate to having been there not once, but three different times. It's a legitimate time to be afraid. It's also a time that we have doubts, where we have questions that simply are not answered without great struggle. And so we come to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and we have a switch in Mark's gospel from the teaching and parables that we've seen previously in chapter 4, and we come into the end of chapter 4, and we have this narrative account of this time when Jesus and his disciples got on a boat and went across the water, something that happened countless times during their lives and in Jesus' ministry, because this is just where they lived, and this is just how you got around, and yet This time is recorded for us because it is a time of doubt and fear in the life of the disciples. But I want to point out to you as we begin to go through this that you may have some expectation that Jesus is going to come up to them and he's going to put his arm around them and he's going to tell them everything is going to be okay and that never happens. That does not happen in this account. If you want that to happen... I'm sorry. But what Jesus says to them is very pointed. And so you and I, if we're going to be mature in our faith, if we're going to get past this this childish Christianity that we often see around us, we need to be able to take it when Jesus says hard words. And that's this this morning. So let's look beginning in verse 35. What Jesus does and how he interacts with his disciples. Verses 35 and 36, we see that Jesus directs the actions of his disciples. 
He directs their actions. Look what he says. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him in the, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. Jesus is ministering to this crowd of people. He's, he's talking with them. He's teaching. He's healing the, the things that he is often doing when he's in a crowd of people. And it comes to a point where he is ready to go do something else. He's ready to be somewhere else. And so he tells them very plainly, let's go across. Let's go to the other side. He gives them a direction. It's a plain and simple direction. If we we're just reading through, we don't think anything about it. It's, it's a common thing that he would say, we're going to go to the other side. But the fact of the matter is, in this instance, they do so. Now remember, it was not many chapters ago that when Jesus would say something like this, there would be questions, right? They would say, well, we, we still have this crowd, or, or we can come back here. There's a lot of people wanting to see you. But this time, when Jesus says, let's go across, let us go across to the other side, they, they do what? They go with him. As a matter of fact, they get the boat together, they leave the crowd, they put him in the boat, and they go to the other side. And there are other boats with them, so we have this whole fleet, if you will, of boats going across to the other side. Jesus knows exactly where his disciples need to be. Now, because we're not limited to stopping in verse 35 and 36, we know where the rest of this story is going. And so we need to understand that Jesus takes them to the boat, onto the water, and into the storm. It's not an accident. You say, why would Jesus do that? Well, I don't know. Now, there's a lot of discovery that takes place on this trip for the disciples. They learn a great deal about Jesus on this trip. And so that can be the reason. And if we want to put that as the reason, that's fine. But, but what the Bible gives us is that Jesus was ready to go. He was ready to go to the other side. And so he tells them, let's go. That's all the explanation that's needed. Think about that, because it's going to be important as we go through the rest of this text to understand that it's Jesus who leads them into the storm. Now I know, again, when we think about this text and we think about what comes out of this text and most people's understanding of this text that it has to do with okay Jesus calming the storm that's going to happen we just haven't got there yet but before he calms the storm if you believe this morning that Jesus Christ is God that he has all knowledge and all power and all ability and what you have to understand here is that he directs the actions of his disciples and the actions that he directs them to take is to get in the boat and go out on the water even though there's a storm coming. Even though they're going to encounter something that's going to cause them great fear and doubt. He directs them to do that. So sometimes we need to understand 
that when we're going through difficulty and we're going through hardship and we're facing times that just they, they, they cause us to, to question, they cause us to, to struggle, we need to understand that it may very well have been Jesus that led us there. That especially we need to understand that's true, that when Jesus leads us somewhere... And we go through a storm in that time, we go through doubt, we go through hardship, we go through pain, but Jesus is leading us that he has a plan for us in what is going on. Now, there are a lot of people who want to claim the name of Christ, but don't want to accept that. But there's a lot of benefit that comes to us when we go through trials and hardships, going places that Jesus has led us. And we're going to see that as we go through with these disciples. So they get in the boat. Jesus directs their actions and they get in the boat. But what we see almost immediately when we get into verses 37 and 38 is that their fear leads to doubt. Their fear leads to doubt. Look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. So this storm hits, and the boat that they're in begins to fill up with water. Now remember, there is no one you can call. There's no coast guard. There's, There's no rescue boats. You're out in the middle. It is completely dark because there is no electricity anywhere. And the storm is coming. The boat is filling up. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so they go. But he, now they're, they're experiencing this, the water's coming in. But he, Jesus, verse 38, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I'm not a huge fan of boats, not been on a whole lot of boats. But we'll compare this to airplanes. The thing I don't like being on. When you are on an airplane, especially if it's a big airplane, big airplanes are a lot better than small airplanes. You're on a big airplane, and uh, there's no bad weather or anything like that. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's interesting because sometimes if you're watching, if they've got monitors and you're watching, you go up and down hundreds, sometimes thousands of feet and don't even notice if you drop a lot, real quick, you can feel it in your stomach. If you've flown, you know what I'm talking about. You can feel it in your stomach, right? But last time I flew, Charlotte to New York, little plane. Little planes are not as much fun to ride on. We rode this, this airline, whatever. Not, we were on an airline, but this, this uh, uh, ridge of air if you will, that's moving across, you know, fronts, like we have out there right now, this wind, you know, fronts coming around. We rode on one, Charlotte to New York. It was up and down and up and down and up, and you, it was enough you could, I mean, you could about feel it, you about feel your, your bottom come out of the seat, I mean, it was just, not a big fan of doing that. It's good to know that there's all these safety things for airlines, and you're not very likely in, in them crashing and all that, but you're not thinking about that when the plane's going up and up and down, up and down. But you can always see the veteran people flying. Because somebody that flies like all the time, 
That stuff doesn't bother them. I got their headphones on. They, they medicated before they got on the plane, and they're out. They're not even worried about it. That's Jesus, right? He is apparently the veteran at this. He's apparently been through these storms before because everybody is going crazy. The boat is sinking. We're all going to die, and Jesus is asleep on a pillow. He's just not worried about it. It's, it just doesn't seem to bother him. And so they come to Jesus, and here he is, everybody, the world's going crazy, we're all going to die, the ship is filling up, and they come to Jesus, and they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? You're asleep. We're all going to die, and you are just going to stay here asleep and drown with the rest of us while you're sleeping. Now, there's great irony in that question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Is that not the whole reason that Jesus is in the boat to start with? Is that not the whole reason he was standing on the shore teaching to everyone? Is that not the reason he left the glory and splendor of heaven and came and dwelt among these very disciples? Is because he cared that they were perishing? It's the whole reason he came. But in this instance, Jesus, do you you not care? We're all going to die. Do you not care? For the disciples' fear had led to doubt. They doubt the whole reason that they're out there on the water. Jesus was the one who had directed them to leave the shore, to get out in the boat and go across the water. And now he is asleep as they are dying. At least they think so. Do you see what happens when we have fear? Do you see what happens when we fear the things going on around us? It leads to doubt. The problem with doubt is it leads to more fear. And that fear, it, it causes us to have further doubt. And the more we doubt... The more, we'll, the more we are less assured of the things of God, the more we fear. See, the irony is that they are perishing, but that he does care. He cared enough to come to live with them and to die for them. He cared that much. See, we have to confront our fear and our doubt head on. Because if we refuse to accept that we have it, if we try to just dismiss it, we try to just work through it on our own, what we do is in those times when we are going through tremendous storms, tremendous trials and tribulations, we very quickly fall away. We go back. To the parable of the sower once again. The seed falls on the rocky soil. The roots are not deep. And it springs up for a little while. And then it fades. And Jesus' explanation was that it was those who, who encountered the fear and the doubt. Who encountered the tribulations and the trials. And it was too much for them. 
That's what's happening to the disciples here. Jesus has led them out into the middle of the ocean, or to the middle of the sea. They're out there in the middle of the sea. The storm is coming up. There's no one to rescue them, and he is asleep. And they should see his sleep as a sign of his control, but they do not. How else could you sleep in what is going on? Except Jesus had no fear of dying. Jesus had no fear that the boat would sink. He is modeling for them the comfort and assurance that we find in the arms of God, and yet they are scared. We should be cautious of our fears. We should be aware of them. What do we do when we get that phone call that our mother has cancer? It's not unimaginable. Many of you have gotten that phone call. What do you do when you find out that someone you love is gone? What do you do when you're unsure of how you're going to pay your bills? What do you do when you're unsure of what the future holds? When you're dealing with problems in your family? What, what do you do? We're going to have a reaction. We're, we're going to have uh, uncertainty. We're going to have fear. We're going to have doubt. But, but what do we do with it? Do we let it control us? Do we come to Jesus and say, Do you not care that we are perishing? Or are our fears and our doubts, are they subservient to the fact that we know the King who is in control of all? I'm not saying our gut reaction when things happen to us is not going to be one of pain and hurt. But what's going to be ultimately in control of our life? Will it be our fear and our doubt? Or will it be the one who's in control of all? That's what Jesus demonstrates to them as we go into the next verse. We see him demonstrate his control. They've had their fear and doubt. And he's going to demonstrate to them who he is. Why is it ridiculous? Why is it why does it upset Jesus so much that fear and doubt controlled them? Well, look at who he is. Verse 39, he has ultimate control over all. And he awoke, almost as if he didn't hear what they had said before. They didn't wake him up and then say it. He awoke. He awoke, verse 39, and rebuked the wind and the sea, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You ever been woken up when you're sleeping really well? Yeah, so I love the pictures. If you've ever seen artist renditions of this, you know, you always have Jesus. He goes up to the, to the very front of the boat and he stands there and he, you know, he'll lift up his arms and he'll say, peace, be still. See, I read this and I see groggy Jesus. Groggy, you know, groggy Jesus. 
They just woke the guy up. He's been sleeping well. He is exhausted. He's been teaching and performing miracles. And they wake him up. But, you know, apparently he's well-groomed and he goes to the front of the boat and he sticks his arms out. You know, it's our attempt not to make Jesus human, but that's what he was. So groggy Jesus says, peace, be still. And he's in control. He demonstrates his control. He can, even though he is groggy, he can say, peace, be still to the sea, and it is calm. He can rebuke the winds, and they will cease. It's pretty amazing. He just has this power to to speak, and it's done. But see, what's more powerful to me is the fact that Jesus does not take control of this situation when he speaks, but he was in control of this situation all along. There is no point in this story where Jesus is not in control of the weather. As a matter of fact, if you rewind all the way back to verse 35, when they get in the boat, and I'm assuming the sun was out and and everything is nice, Jesus is in control then. And he knows the exact point that they're going to get to when the storm is going to come. He knows the point where they're going to come and wake him because they are desperately afraid. He's in ultimate control over all. That's why their fear is so unfounded. Because he has been in control from the beginning and they simply have not realized that yet. With all the time that they had spent with Jesus, they should have known that he was in control of everything that was going on. They should have been aware of his power and his authority over everything. And yet they come to him cowering in fear and questioning whether or not he cares if they perish. They had missed it all because they failed to understand that he is in control. And I'm amazed at the number of Christians who are often in that same situation. They just act like somehow there are certain dominions of creation, certain areas of our world where God's just not in control. Now I can see the temptation to believe that. Because we do see things happen in our world. We, we see them happen every single day. And we, we just wonder why. Why did that happen? How could God allow that to happen? How can God allow people to do the terrible things that we see them doing? But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't remove the fact that he's in control. And it's, it's just bizarre to me the number of people that would come to church and sing about the control that God has over the world, sing about the majesty and power of their Creator, and then have such concrete doubts about God's control over various areas of creation. One of my favorites with this is politics. It's always so amazing. It's one of the reasons that I 
almost completely gotten myself away from all politics. It used to be one of the things that I just loved and drove me. I would read about it all the time. I was always reading about uh, politicians and, 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 and politicians in history and the way people stood on issues and things like that. And then I realized the number of Christians that put their faith in politics. It made me want to have nothing to do with it. Because I didn't want to ever anyone to ever look at me and think that's where I put my faith. They put their faith in who comprises the legislature, who is in the White House, and it's, it's so ridiculous. The number of people that put their faith a little further north in Washington, they put their faith in Wall Street and in their finances and how much is in their bank account and how much is in their retirement. I've got an app on my phone. I started a retirement account when I came here as your pastor. And, and you know, it's, it's diversified and all those fun things you're supposed to do. And I got this little app, and it, it shows up green when the stocks do well for the day. And it shows up red when they don't. And I look at that and go, man, it stinks. You know, they're winning 100 bucks today. And then I go, wait, I've got like 35 years before I retire. Why is this an app on my phone? And it's tempting to think, okay, if I manage this differently, will I have enough money to retire on? And when am I going to retire? And, when I'm, and then I have to step back and go, why am I thinking about that? Not that you shouldn't plan for the future. Not that you should be um, bad stewards of what God has given you. But, but there's a temptation to put your faith there. And yet here we have an account, we have a record of Jesus who is in control of all and his disciples who have witnessed that time and time again miss it. And we must be careful not to miss that as well. Would we live differently if we truly believed that God was in control of all? Would it change how you live? Would it change what you do with your time? Would it change what you do with your finances? Would it change where you put your faith? It does for the disciples. Now, it doesn't here in Mark 35 or Mark 4, 35 through 41. But as we look out further than this, as we look into the history of the church and the history of these men who witnessed this, we realize that it dramatically changed their life when they realized he was in control. He's in control of all. And what that does as we move into verse 40 is it shows him, or rather it causes him to address something other than the storm. Does Jesus talk about the storm there in verse 40? He doesn't. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I'm sorry that was a bad storm. I didn't mean to let it get that bad. I'm sorry. I just thought you guys were more ready for a, a rougher storm. I would have let there be less water in the boat if, if I'd have known. No, he doesn't say any of that. These words of Jesus are stinging. He said to them, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That hurts, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you don't get the sting of those words, but I would think for the disciples, that's got to hurt. 
What do you mean, why are we afraid? Did you not see what was going on around us? Did you not see the boat was filling up with water? Did you not see that we were going to die? Jesus was asleep. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He doesn't address the storms. He doesn't address the cause of their fear. He addresses the lack of their faith. Now think about that. We are in a society, and we often, as churches, are as like this as well. We address the fear, correct? Grab our prayer list when you leave. A prayer list, we, we talk about people's fears. They're legitimate fears. I have family members of mine on that list. But Jesus doesn't address the fear. He addresses the lack of faith. Who cares? Word that differently. It's not important how big that storm was. It's not important how much water got into the boat. It's not important how fast the wind was blowing. What's important for Jesus to address with them is the fact that they were with him and they still had this lack of faith. He was there with them. The one who had guided them, the one who had led them into the boat, the one who had led them onto the water, the one who had brought them to the exact place that they were. And yet it wasn't the storm that was important. It's the fact that when the storm came, they had a lack of faith. Don't be afraid, he said. Why do you have so much fear? Why are you so afraid? When Jesus is in his proper place in our life, when we understand who he is and what he is capable of, it should diminish our fear. Now, I'm not going to go so far and say, take it away. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe we should have no fear. We have nothing to fear. I don't know that we can be without fear in the world that we live in. I don't know if we can be without fear while we are still in our sin, still dealing with the effects of our fallen world. But friends, fear cannot drive us. It drove the disciples to go and to find Jesus and to wake him up. Do not care that we're perishing. They're afraid. They're scared. But he's concerned about their lack of faith. And we should be concerned about our own lack of faith in times where we allow fear and doubt to consume us and own us and drive us. He addresses their lack of faith and not the storm around them. And this is what it causes to happen to them. Look at verse 41. Now they were afraid before. But this whole thing now, it says, verse 41, they were filled with great fear. So not only have they went through the storm where they expected to die, 
But now the storm has stopped. Not only has it stopped, but it's just calm. The whole, the whole thing is just calm. The whole ocean is just calm. The water is calm. The wind is calm. Everything is calm. So they're filled with great fear, and they say to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Jesus' actions here answer the questions of his identity. See, until they understood his identity, they were incapable. Un- they were just, it was impossible for them. They had no opportunity, no ability to be not afraid. See, that's what he's actually addressing back in verse 40. That's actually what he is upset about. Why do they, why do they not have faith? Why are they so afraid? It's because they've yet to understand who he is. Because once they understood who he was, the fear and the doubt were gone. Go and read the book of Acts. Read what these men do with the understanding of who Jesus is. But here in verse 41, they're still asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this that can speak and everything would become calm? They had not yet answered that question. They they couldn't make the jump. They couldn't make the leap into understanding that the one who was standing before them was not just some man who could do good deeds, but the one standing before them was and is the Son of God. And it's only the one who is the Son of God who can speak and everything obey Him. It's only the Son of God who could perform the miracles that we have seen thus far in Mark's Gospel, the miracles that we see throughout the rest of the Gospels. It's only the Son of God who could go to the cross and die in our place that we would have forgiveness of our sin. They couldn't... They couldn't put off their fear and their doubt. They couldn't take up the faith that Jesus wanted for them until they understood who he is. And that's the ultimate problem we deal with. Why would we not give Jesus ultimate control of our life? Why would he not be the one who directs every aspect of our life? Why would we not have Jesus as the one who directs our family, who directs our finances, who directs the things that we do each and every day? Why would we not have Jesus do that? It's because we have not accepted his identity. I don't know that the disciples in Mark chapter 4 have enough information to know that. But we do. We have enough information to know who Jesus is. We have enough information to know what he did on our behalf in going to the cross, in dying as a substitute for us, in offering us forgiveness from our sin. So the only reason that we would not give him control, the only reason that we would continue to wallow in our lack of faith, the only reason that we would allow our fears to run our life is if we have not embraced his identity as Savior and Lord. 
That's the question they have when they see all that has happened. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The answer is Jesus is God. And if we believe that there is a God and that he has created all that we see, that he has made us in his image, and that though we have rebelled against him and sinned against him, he sent his son to die in our place, then we must accept that he has told us not to fear. To find our comfort and our strength in him. Not to doubt, but to believe. And to know that he is Lord. We're left with no answer to that question. Mark doesn't say in verse 42 that this is the answer. There's no verse 42 in your Bible. Mark trusts that if you have examined his gospel up to this point, and especially from verses 35 through 40, that you have come away understanding the answer to that question. Who is it that even the wind listens to him? Who is it that even the seas calm at his command? It's God. See, too often I think this passage is preached just so poorly. I could see where you could read this and come away with some claim that Jesus will calm the storms. You see, nothing could be further from the point of this text. The calming of the storm is a response to the disciples' lack of faith. He doesn't calm the storms because of their faith. If they had had the faith necessary to ride out the storm, Jesus would still be asleep in the boat. See, there's no promise in Scripture that Jesus will calm the storms of your life. In fact, I I think this claim is, frankly, disingenuous to people who are dealing with legitimate problems in their life. How would you feel if tomorrow you called to pastor my son or daughter has been diagnosed with terminal, incurable, inoperable cancer. Would you come to the hospital and pray with us? And I walked into the hospital. There's your child in their hospital bed and they're obviously in immense physical and emotional pain. There you are, and you found out that your son or daughter, they're going to die. And I sat there beside you, and I put my arm around you, and I said, Jesus calms the storms. If you never walked back into this church, I would completely understand 
you hated me for the rest of your life, that would be understandable. As a matter of fact, if you walked away from the faith, I would not be surprised at all. Because outside of a miracle and one which is definitely not promised, that storm may not be calm. You may watch your child slowly die. And then after that, never find comfort. See, there's a problem when we try to say that Scripture says things that it simply does not say. But it does say something about that situation. Something that I could share with you in that moment. Something I can share with you now. Something that you can share with others who are struggling because it's something the Scriptures share with us here. Not that Jesus calms some storms that we have and we take that often to be things that are even not even worthy of being called storms, but regardless. See, the message here is that with Jesus being in the boat, there's nothing to actually fear. See, that's different. It's completely different because... There's no promise that that storm was going to stop. There was no promise here that it wasn't going to rage on. Maybe until they reached the other side, there was no promise that it would ever stop for them. As a matter of fact, all of these men who are on this boat and they experience this storm, they would go on for the rest of their lives to deal with hardship and persecution and eventual death because they rode with Jesus in the boat. But what they would come to understand as they realized who he was, that Jesus is the ultimate creator of the universe. He is the one who has made everything. He is the one who is God living among us. What they came to realize is once they understood that, they didn't have anything to fear. See, for that parent who's dealing with that child who is not going to make it, with that mother or father who doesn't know how they're going to put the next meal on the table, they, they can't expect that some pat on the back is going to remove all of their problems. But whether it's a Christian in this country who's struggling or one of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who is facing death for their faith, what they can understand is that when they have Christ, when he is there with them, that there is nothing to fear. Because what is death but leaving this life and going to be in the presence of our Creator? What is hardship in this life but preparation for the joy and pleasure that is to come in Christ? See, I don't want to oversimplify and, and make it as if Jesus is going to take away everything. As a matter of fact, He leads His disciples into this storm. But he wants us to know when we are facing hardship and doubt and fear that when he's with us, we have nothing to be afraid of. When he's with us, we, we have nothing that can take away our joy. We have nothing that can take away our inheritance in the kingdom. We, there's nothing that can come against us and be victorious over us when we have Christ. The disciples missed that for whatever reason because they failed to understand that Jesus is God. 
But we can't miss that. His word has spelled it out for us. So this morning, if you're going through doubt and fear, if you're going through hardship, if you're going through a storm and it doesn't seem like it's going to stop, I do not have good news in that area. I can't promise that that's going to happen. But I do have the assurance that when we have Christ, there is nothing to fear. We have Christ. There's nothing to be afraid of. There may be things that cause us fear and there will be things that cause us doubt, but there is nothing to be afraid of because we have the ultimate victory in Christ. And so when we come to verses four, when we come to verse 41 and we 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 have the question who is this? Then we can respond boldly to the wind, to the rain, to the storm, to the doubt, and to the fear. We can respond boldly and say, this is our God. And he has given us everything that we need. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we have you to hold on to in any storm. We have you who rescues us when we are drowning and sinking. God, I thank you that we have the answer to this question. God, we know that you direct our life. And God, we ask this morning for more direction. God, we know that our fear and our doubt, they, they take us off course, they, they pull us away from you, they, they drive us in the wrong direction. And God, we pray this morning that you remove our fear and our doubt. God, we know that you have control over everything. And God, I pray that your control helps us to remove our fear and our doubt. God, I pray that instead of worrying about the storms that we face and our trials and our tribulation, God, our hearts would be concerned with our dependence upon you. That we would focus on you fully. That we would seek after your face and your goodness in everything. God, we're thankful. We're thankful that we have been called your children. And that, God, we can live in a life that is dependent upon you. We can have the calming assurance that you are our Lord, you are our King, you are our Savior. God, help us. Help us to erase fear and erase doubt. God, remove it from our heart. Remove it from our mind. God, demonstrate for us 
a life of obedience. God, we thank you for all that you've done. God, all that you're going to do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we get ready to sing. I'm reminded of the gospel account where Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And he's praying. He's crying out to God in the garden at Gethsemane. He is praying, the Bible says, so intensely that his sweat was his drops of blood. And his prayer is a prayer of dependence. He was going through a trial. He was going through a storm. And Jesus declares in that prayer his dependence upon his heavenly Father. That whatever whatever God had ahead for him, his dependence would be on his heavenly Father. Friends, what a blessing it would be if that was our prayer. As we deal with hardship and pain and trials, and they are real and they come frequently. How amazing it would be as a demonstration of our faith to the world around us if our dependence is on our Father. As we sing, I want to invite you to to pray. If, If you're struggling with fear and doubt, that you would pray to your Heavenly Father to remove that from you. And if you have fear and doubt because you don't know Christ, you've never followed after Him, you've never never understood Him as Lord and Savior of your life, come and turn to Him today. Cry out. Leave the fear and the doubt behind. And follow after this great God who calms the sea at just His words. He makes the wind stop just by speaking. He wants you to follow Him today. Would you respond as we sing?